Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. One of the big, big stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today, Amazon discloses a 20% stake in EV maker Rivian. Ed Ludlow joins us from uh, San Francisco. Ed, big story here, uh, big names. What's Amazon doing? Yeah, it's interesting because we've reported the influence that Amazon had over this company already. You know, just for the audience, this is a company that's made very few vehicles. I'm talking tens of units of battery <laughs> electric pickups, but is really closely followed because Amazon was is also a customer of Rivian. They've ordered 100,000 delivery vans. You know, we, we've known that they've made private investments along the way in this company, but 20% stake in a company that's about to IPO is, is important, right, as part of market functioning. Um, but it's just, you know, it frankly adds evidence to the piece we put out last month that this is a company under immense pressure because its biggest customer is also one of its biggest shareholders and it's kind of pulling the strings of what yeah. Rivian's trying to do. Why would Amazon not just outright buy this company? It's a great question because Amazon has taken that approach in the past. If you think about its efforts in autonomous driving, it bought Zooks. Now, the context there was that Zooks was struggling. It was desperate to raise money um, and you know, was basically shopping itself around. Um, so it has taken that approach in the past. But you know, Rivian is run by this guy, RJ Scaringe, a PhD holder from MIT. He has big dreams and visions for electric vehicles. You know, They are already making their own vehicles for consumers, right? a battery electric pickup they're already coming off the assembly line limited deliveries and you know this is a story about a founder and a guy who's built a company really quickly but in order to get to this stage he's had to make compromises and the amazon stake of 20 percent seems to be the biggest compromise of all do we know you know it's interesting here i amazon's invested more than 1.3 billion dollars in this automaker they have about 150 million shares of preferred stock but the voting, do we know what their voting power is here? Because it just feels like, as you suggested in your reporting, that they're really in control here. This is what's kind of fun about the story, that when Rivian filed its S1, remember the S1's in, right? And it's public. They said Ford has a stake of more than 5% in Rivian. They said T. Rowe Price has a stake of more than 5% in Rivian. You know, these big names, Oryx. Um, other investors include Fidelity, BlackRock. But the Amazon stake was redacted hmm. um, very high up, you know, and so now we know that the ownership interest is 20 percent, um, you know, and, and you'd assume that the voting rights are proportionate based on the, the volume of preferred stock that's been issued. Amazon yeah. has about 150 million uh, shares of preferred stock. So, well, I, I don't have to tell you this because you have the privilege of covering them all for us here <laughs> at Bloomberg. But there's a lot of players in the EV space. It's a market yeah. that's getting very, very crowded. And, and there's kind of this narrative out there that they're not all going to make it. Does an investment from Amazon make Rivian one of the ones that's going to have that sticking power? Yeah, 100%. I mean, according to sources, as we've reported, you know, the, the valuation of $80 billion that Rivian is seeking in its IPO is based largely on the fact that Amazon is an investor and a customer. You know, you saw the influence of the Hertz deal with Tesla yeah. this past week, for example. 
the infancy of EVs was about selling to consumers, gaining traction, EV adoption. But now you're seeing corporates come in and decide about their policy with regards to carbon reduction. And you can see the power of a big corporate placing a mass order. So Rivian kind of hit that sweet spot right. It has three products, two consumer ones and then the Amazon van. The Amazon van gives it guaranteed revenue. It's a contract for 100,000 vans. We know that. We know what the deadline is, and they're on track to meet it. Mm. And as we reported, according to sources, there's some great perks in the deal, like they get recurring software revenues. Amazon pays them basically for over-the-air updates for the duration of the contract. It's a great thing to have. But as we've also reported, Rivian have had to make some sacrifices and put those consumer products on the back burner. Because if Jeff Bezos is one of your biggest shareholders, right, and he has expectations, because he tweeted after we published the story saying, hey, RJ, where's my vans? Um, <laughs> you know, you can imagine the pressure on that company's management team to deliver. Just uh, lastly, Ed, what do we know about the product, the van itself? Yeah, so the, the van can do up to 150 miles on a single charge. It's very much a product for last mile delivery. Amazon already buys delivery vans, right, from Mercedes, from Ram, from Ford. Um, it's going to be a direct competitor to Ford's e-transit van, which is interesting given Ford is an investor in Rivian. Um, and, you know, it's it's... I'm hearing it's having some supply chain issues because it's mm. a bulky product. You need a lot of metal. You need a lot of semiconductors. But... You know, it's a simple design and it shares common battery and motor architecture with the consumer products. That's how Rivian's been able to pull it off. That's kind of the key. The underlying technology is the same across all three products. All right, Ed, thank you so much uh, for bringing this uh, story here in this reporting. Uh, again, Amazon discloses 20% stake in EV maker uh, Rivian. So a big, big uh, validation, I guess, if you will, of the company and its technology. Ed Ludlow. Uh, technology reporter for us uh, at Bloomberg News. He is based uh, in San Francisco. All right, everybody's got their strategies for managing this market. Again, equity markets at or near all-time highs. Interest rates uh, very much muted with the 10-year 1.57%. Our next guest focuses on the three Bs. We're going to get the latest on that. John Augustine, Chief Investment Officer for Huntington Private Bank, joins us on the, home, uh, on the phone from Columbus, Ohio, where the Penn State Nittany Lions are coming in this weekend to fight <laughs> the Ohio State University. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about the three Bs. How are they kind of guiding your investment outlook? Sure, Paul. Good morning. And it is going to be a good game uh, in Columbus this weekend. So the, the three Bs, so number one, we want to be bond- light. Real yields are still too negative for us in the bond world. We don't see recession. So <clears throat> to us, a 60-40 portfolio should be more of a 70-30. So that's number mm -hmm. one. Number two, with respect to the stock market, <clears throat> we've been hearing a lot of rotate the value this summer and early now into the fall. But our, our equity team has stayed with growth. They've barbelled between growth and value. And that's worked for us. That's worked for our customers. They've got good returns here in October. So that's the second B, barbell and stocks. The third B is just broaden. And what we mean by broaden is include some commodities, include some real estate with your stocks and bonds. So make sure you're broad in your conduct. Next year is going to be more of an interest rate driven year, which could bring up volatility. Mm -hmm. So we just want to make sure we're broad in our conduct for our clients. So those are the three B's. 
All right, well, let's talk about a few of your specific holdings because I see within your top equity holdings for a few of your strategies are Apple and Amazon. And those two companies, (laughs) you know, didn't do so well when they reported after the bell yesterday. Are you a buyer of the dip here? Not yet. We have to see how it forms. So they're both down a little over 3% today. Now, one interesting thing, though, for our our equity team, what we put on them is a 5% limit on positions. The reason we do that is a lot of our institutional customers have a 5% limit or ceiling on individual positions. So that, in many cases, makes us fang light mm. in portfolios. So as an example, Amazon's a little bit about 6%. Uh, um, excuse me, Microsoft and Apple reach 6% of the S&P 500. So that puts us at one good point there but Microsoft having a better month. So we are in all those stocks. You have to be, but we do limit positions. So it's interesting here. Just love to get your thoughts here. We're more than halfway through earnings uh, this cycle. What's your takeaway? The forward estimates are not going down. Okay. So so current quarter's up. You know, the, the coming into the quarter, it was plus 28% estimate. Actual today looks like plus 36, with a little over half reporting, half of the companies in the S&P 500. What surprises us, though, Paul, is we haven't seen forward estimates go down as much as current quarter estimates are going up. That's unusual. To us, that's a healthy sign. All right. Well, let's talk about the signs we're getting from the bond market. I know you said 70-30 is a more appropriate portfolio allocation, but when you think about Prior to today, as of yesterday's close, an equity market at an all-time high and yet a yield curve that is telling you that there's some serious fear out there about economic growth. How do you kind of square those things? Well, what's really interesting to us, Kaylee, is is the two-year and 10-year moves Mm -hmm. over the past, you know, just so far this month in Europe and the U.S. because they're completely opposite. In the U.S., it's the two-year that's moving up. That signals to us a more hawkish Fed. In Europe, it's the 10-year that's moving up. That signals to us, our fixed income team, a more lenient ECB that wants growth and is not going to inhibit. So there's a big difference between 2- and 10-year yields, U.S., Europe. And the Fed is going to have to thread that needle next week. They don't want an inverted yield curve. They've already kind of done it. 30s to 20. Mm-hmm. We don't think they're going to want to invert the yield curve anymore. So they've got to thread that needle on tapering and potential rate increases at their statement press conference next Wednesday. John, what's the uh, give us a name or two that you've recently added to your portfolio and why? Well, the, the equity team has come into, again, under the barbell theme. So what they're looking at more now is coming in, for instance, um, with a Parker Hannafin, but then bringing in Johnson & Johnson. So cyclical name, growth name. Coming in with Caterpillar, but then bringing in Crown Castle into some of the portfolios, which we own in all three of our equity portfolios. So they're coming in with a barbell aspect. Usually they'll bring in a cyclical, and they'll bring in a growth at the same time. And we like that approach. It's worked for us this year. Hey, John, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We always love getting uh, your thoughts and and some of the names that you and your teams are looking at. Crown Castle, that's a great name. I did a lot of work with that company back in the day in the the wireless space. John Augustine, 
Chief Investment Officer, Huntington Private Bank, joining us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio, home of the Ohio State University, <laughs> which we're welcoming in my Penn oh, State. Oh, if only Matt Miller were here. Lines. I know, I'm putting that out to Matt, so it uh, should be fun. Bring on uh, Brenda O'Connor, Senior Vice President, uh, Financial Advisor for UBS uh, International. Brenda, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, we love to to speak to you and just get a sense of, you know, what your clients, what your individual clients are asking you today. We've got markets, you know, making, you know, back or near all-time highs. We've had very strong third quarter earnings. What are you hearing the most from your clients? Well, thank you for having me. Right. You know, nervous, there was some nervousness about Q3 earnings because investors just weren't sure how bad the damage was going to be from three things, really Delta, supply chain issues and increasing input costs. And here we are well into Q3 earnings. 82% of companies have exceeded expectations and markets are up 23% year to date. So when I'm looking at my client portfolios, I can't help but think we were up 18% last year. We're up 100% from the March 2020 lows. Maybe it's time to de-risk a little bit. And we're looking Mm -hmm. to private assets to do that. That being said, we are still positive on equities. Uh, We think the S&P will be at around 4,800 by next June and 5,000 by the end of next December. Well, I feel like we've been having this conversation, and granted, we have had this conversation many, 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 many times, but the death of the 60-40 portfolio and whether that's a strategy that still works. When you say you're looking to de-risk a little bit, how do you think about kind of that ratio in your portfolio allocation? Right. So right now, we really, really like private real estate. It is a great inflation hedge, and we can talk about that more a bit later. It's a diversifier to equities, and it's also a great source of income. And given given where fixed income markets at, that's super important. We're also not too concerned about these lofty valuations or the prospect of a housing bubble. Think of this. In in the U.S., there's a 5.5 million deficit of housing units because Uh, Construction has dragged for the last two decades. It's going to take another 10 years to make this up, which is great for the sector. And as uh, vacancy rates are under 5%, which they are now, that's great for uh, landlord pricing power. So we really like allocating to real estate, private real estate, uh, given where markets are right now. So, Brenda, you're in South Florida and love to get a sense of kind of what's that market like down there? Is it as robust as... uh, People make it out to be. We've got obviously a lot of folks here in the New York metro area, you know, making their migration down there. And this time, not temporary, not seasonal, but more permanent. Right. And you can see that everywhere in terms of real estate prices. You can you can see that in terms of the influx of New Yorkers and, and finance professionals, tech professionals. In terms of an investment perspective, I have also noticed that the appetite for international is somewhat different than we see in other parts of the country. So, for example, we're really looking to China right now. We downgraded China over the summer on the back of the regulatory crackdown in education and gaming. Chinese equities are down 13% year to date, but we do think some of this is priced in. We also think some of the fiscal tightening is priced in. Investors tend to be underallocated to this region, so we think there are opportunities in terms of green tech and consumer durables, but investment preferences for international seems to be a little bit different in, in South Florida, given the international dynamic of, of this market. Well, while we're talking about the migration to Florida, one of the reasons it's so attractive is because of taxes, frankly, especially compared to, you know, the New York tri-state area where Paul and I find ourselves. While we're talking about taxes, given the 
quote unquote framework that we've gotten in terms of what the tax package is going to look like uh, on Capitol Hill, how does that affect your clients and, and what you're telling them to do? Right. It, it, it doesn't t- change too much because our expectations for, for next year already factor in uh, some, some tax cuts. So let me talk about this in the context of something like infl- uh, in, in growth. Um, you know, Q3 obviously came in at uh, much lower than we saw in, in Q2 at 6.7%, lower than the consensus. There wasn't anything too surprising here, given that the this was the first quarter with no government stimulus, uh, n- none of the headwinds that we saw earlier, like Delta or supply bottlenecks. We do expect Q4 to be much stronger. People are traveling again. Hotel occupancy is above 65%. Open table reservation numbers have recovered from their severe August-September dip. And we do think that um, GDP is going to be about 5 0.3% for 2022. Uh, so all our expectations, both on, on GDP, inflation, um, outlook, do factor in uh, some of those those tax hikes that we're expecting to see. So Brenda, in, in terms of equities, um, you know, for those of your clients that have the courage to be in this stock market, uh, what are the sectors that you're suggesting they focus on? When we're talking to our clients, it is all about continuing to follow this positive earnings story. Uh, we do not think that the reflation trade is quite over yet. We still like energy and financials. Think about financials alone. We've seen a record year in M&A for the investment bank. Banks loan loss reserves continue to be released, and net interest margins will only start to look better as that 10-year inches towards 1.8 and higher. 90% of the financials that have reported this quarter, by the way, have been expectations by a margin of 20%. So financials is an area that we're definitely looking at. All right. And we definitely saw some positive uh, beats when it comes to the energy complex yeah. today with Exxon and Chevron and those buybacks, man. And Goldman Sachs yes. is talking about that, Paul, and how in 2022, buybacks could be even 8% above the levels they are this year. They there's a so lot much, of cash out there. Yeah, there's a lot of cash out there. Hey, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Brenda O'Connor, Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor for UBS International, based uh, in the greater Miami, Florida area. Lots of news coming out of Silicon Valley this week. We've had earnings, and uh, last night we had earnings from Amazon and Apple. And then also Facebook making a big, big investment in what it calls the metaverse. And in fact, big enough that they are changing the name of the company from Facebook to Meta Technologies, Inc., I believe. Mark Bergen, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Mark, what is Meta? What is the Metaverse? What is Facebook doing here? Uh, actually, I think it's Meta Platforms Inc. Meta Platforms, um, thank you. <laughs> what's kind of confusing is they're what they're not doing is they're not doing what what uh, Alphabet did or Google did six years ago, which is sort of form a new parent company that that have, houses a bunch of different companies. They're sort of renaming themselves but keeping the brand. Uh, and part of the idea here is that Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO has just started betting on Facebook's future being in augmented reality and what he calls the metaverse, which is sort of this uh, vague idea from science fiction that we will be able to like <laughs> engage with, with each other in augmented reality spaces and virtual reality using some sort of ill-defined headgear. At this point, it is an Oculus device. But during the presentation, sorry, Zuckerberg also showed off sort of a smartwatch and talked about glasses as well. Well, 
it's one thing to decide your company's future, you know, looks like that and you're going to push more into the meta metaverse and this augmented reality. You can still do that without rebranding entirely and without changing the name of your company, which makes me wonder how much of this is actually because Facebook found itself in very hot water politically. There's been a lot of negative news flow over the last several months, really. Is this also kind of PR related? As we saw a lot of people came out with the comparison to Philip Morris from mm -hmm. 2003, I believe, right. when they rebranded. Re and, and certainly Facebook has been called by critics uh, the new tobacco. Um, you know, they addressed this uh, very briefly yesterday in the presentation. There was sort of a that, interestingly enough, they had Nick Clegg, who's the VP of Government Affairs, speak and talk about how they're, when they're approaching the metaverse, they're going to um, bake in a lot of the privacy and data controls that uh, arguably have not been part of Facebook from the onset. Well, and Paul, I couldn't help but notice what Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted after this. And she talked about the rebrand and she said, Meta as in, we are a cancer to democracy metastasizing into global surveillance and propaganda machine for boosting authoritarian regimes and destroying civil society for profit. That's so clearly, <laughs> the progressives are not that impressed. They're not that impressed. And it, it, Mark, I mean, $10 billion next year, that's kind of a big number, but I mean, I know it's for Facebook and they can afford it and everything. Is the sense that this is something that they're going to throw real money behind over the next 10 years? I think so. If you look at it strategically, you know, a key thing to focus on here is that Facebook um, has been sort of boxed out by Apple and Google for its entire existence, at least on, on the mobile phone in the past decade. Right. So Facebook doesn't own the operating system, which is this big existential concern for them. You've heard them talk a lot about Apple's fees. They've really been challenged by Apple's ad tracking changes. Uh, and this is a way for Facebook to sort of cleverly and I think strategically get ahead and say the next computing platform, we not only are going to be there, but we're going to be the defining company mm. investing the most. And, and um, clearly, like Apple has been investing a lot in augmented reality. Google has, to a certain extent, uh, $10 billion seems like a lot on paper. You know, I saw something, someone to say, like, you know, Netflix invests maybe twice that amount in its media right now. And, and this is a, both a, um, a big investment in media, but also in hardware, silicon, and all the sort of technology that hasn't been invented yet. Well, that's a great point. This I understand the concept and the idea and, the, and kind of, you know, the goal behind it. And yet it still feels very esoteric and, and nebulous in a way. How refined is this idea? I don't know for a fact of how much that presentation yesterday was uh, legitimate technology and how much of it was um, simulation. It seems like a fair amount of it was, was simulated. And they talked about this is something that we're hoping the next five to 10 years, um, you know, we saw an analyst note to say, this is not the, the iPhone moment. There's no actual device. <laughs> There's no actual sort of, uh, this is uh, an imagined world, which, which to, um, you know, Facebook's defense, this is something that Google has been doing too, where they talk about here are these projects that we're working on and then give a demo of a thing that doesn't actually work. Mark, internally, how concerned is the company, the board, senior executives about the backlash from Washington and regulators and just the public in general? Um, you know, we had Emily Chang had a senior executive on yesterday who answered this, I thought, in a really telling way. Um, di didn't seem that concerned. I think that they are, they don't see advertisers leaving as far as they know. Um, they don't seem as concerned about a, about a breakup. Um, 
clearly this has been, you know, they are, they're kind of, their position so far at least both sort of on, on the PR side and then I could say politically has been to fight back a little bit and to push back on this and to make this a broader issue around not just Facebook, but, mm. but social media. And, and, and to, to that point, you know, the lawmakers right now are not writing laws about Facebook. They're writing laws about comp- right. the, the laws that will affect TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, uh, the rest of the these, like ad-supported digital platforms. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us, giving us that update here. Uh, Mark Bergen, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.